welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. My name is Taylor Pierce and I'm Senior Economist at OMFIF. Here with me today is Dr. Max Costelli, Head of Strategy and Sovereign Institutions at UBS Asset Management, and Philip Solman, also on the team at UBS. We'll be discussing higher for longer interest rates and what this means for public investors. Welcome, Max and Philip. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Our pleasure. Hello. So we can just jump right in. Max, first question for you. We're facing exogenous shocks to the macro environment, which are increasing in scope and frequency. We've seen this with the pandemic, uh, the energy and commodity shocks from last year and increasing geopolitical fragmentation and tensions. What is your current inflation outlook over the short term and long term? Thank you. And of course, this is the time of the year where you start to think about outlook. And so we are all busy preparing papers and analysis for what we can expect. And of course, we are also very much involved into this type of conversation with many of our clients, central banks and sovereign wealth funds. And we think that our baseline scenario basically is what we call a softish lending scenario, which is basically a scenario of still moderate growth and the inflation falling, but remaining for a prolonged period of time slightly above target. Now, this is very important because, of course, as you know, there is a debate going on, particularly whether eventually the U.S. will be able to escape a recession. And I have to admit that also within our organization, there are different views about that. For instance, we have views that think that ultimately the U.S. will suffer a recession. And this is largely based on historical experience. Basically, when we had such a level of increase in interest rate, historically speaking, the U.S. has always suffered a recession. Our view that instead we will not have a recession in the U.S., and when I mean recession, as I said, we model different scenarios. I mean a deep recession, not just, for instance, a few quarters of negative growth, which also in a softish lending scenario I think is possible. We are The reason why we are uh, confident that uh, there will not be a deep recession in the U.S. is that uh, we see the resilience, in particular, of labor markets in both the U.S. and in Europe. That's actually surprised markets, I would say, during the year that we were expecting more weakness. We are seeing some weakness more recently, definitely. So we are seeing the global demand cooling maybe a little bit more in Europe than in the U.S., but still we believe that this is not enough for pushing the U.S. economy into a depreciation. In such a softish lending scenario, basically if with regards to inflation, we think that inflation peak and they will continue falling, but will probably remain a little bit above of the medium long term, I mean a little bit above target. So this also means, and that's a very important assumption for for markets, that uh, interest rate will remain uh, relatively higher. For instance, just to give you some numbers, in our baseline scenario, we see the U.S. cash rate to really remain above 3% over the next uh, three years. So I would say that we are in the so-called higher for longer type of environment, which I think is compatible with a softish lending scenario. Thanks for laying that out. Given that you see the U.S. US rates remaining above 3%, where do you see risks? And you can discuss this either to the upside or the downside. And how does this tie into the factors you laid out, like labor market resilience and the growth outlook? Yeah, I mean, there is a, as you know, there is a debate about the equilibrium real interest rates. As you know, this is basically what is it? The equilibrium real interest rate is the short-term real interest rate that in the long term, 
is consistent with growth at potential and stable inflation. The equilibrium rate, as you know, is not observable. So it's not something that you find out there in the markets. It's something which has to be estimated. And the results can vary a lot depending on the methodology that you adopt. However, I think there are several factors that uh, point uh, to higher equilibrium real interest rates in the future. Just the one which are often mentioned and which I tend also to agree on are uh, deglobalization, higher public debts, and demographic. So we can debate about what is the level of this equilibrium rate, but what is almost certain is that the era of ultra-low rates that we had for actually a prolonged period of time, basically since the great financial crisis in 2009 up to 2021 during COVID. And of course, one of the most important implications of very ultra-low interest rate was that uh, government debt was uh, sort of a, of a free lunch, uh, if, I, if I can use this terminology. Now, it's pretty obvious, and here I, I refer to the risk that I see down the road, is that should interest rate actually remain higher for longer, as we are assuming in our baseline scenario, the cost of service debt will increase And this also means that it will be more difficult for government to increase uh, expenditure on welfare, on health, uh, on defense, uh, or uh, for instance, on uh, energy transition. This is actually where I see the main risk, because eventually governments uh, will have to make some, uh, I would say, political and popular choices. For instance, they will have either to decrease expenditure in the sensitive sector from a political perspective, or they will have to increase the taxation. Actually, if you look at the recent debate that we had across Europe and the euro area about the stability pact, uh, which, as you know, was suspended during COVID and is under current review, there is, of course, this concern among many governments because, of course, we live in a world where we see populism, we see political extremism. So there is a lot of pressure to maintain the current level of expenditure. This was easily done during the period of a very low interest rate, it will become a little bit more challenging if interest rate and equilibrium interest, real interest rate are going to remain higher for a prolonged period of time. Maybe another, another factor of risk that I see on, on the downsides is that uh, regards uh, financial stability. So far, despite the massive increase in interest rates that we experienced over the last two years, we had some episode of a turmoil, for instance, what happened in the U.S. with the mid-sized bank crisis. But in reality, financial stability has been pretty resilient. We haven't seen a massive impact for the increase in rates. I believe that this is also partly due to the fact that the market expects eventual interest rate to come down the road. You see that in the markets every time we have a positive reading about inflation or anything which points to a softening in monetary policy. The markets are very happy and everything goes up. Actually, we had an experience of that in November when we saw interest rates actually coming down sharply. Now, I think that there are some areas where a prolonged period of a higher interest rate could inflict more pain. One example is, for instance, commercial real estate, where so far has been, despite the drop in the price of these assets, it actually held up relatively well. I think when uh, exactly as I made the point about the sustainability of public debt over the long term, 
I can see some more negative impact coming from a prolonged period of higher interest rate also in some asset classes. On the upside, I mean, as you know, interest rates are always, the market always wants interest rate to go down, not to go up. So on the upside, I believe that what the higher interest rate point is also to the fact that this period of sort of unorthodox monetary policy experiment that we experienced over the last, since the great financial crisis over the last 15 years, just think about quantitative easing and the massive increase in liquidity that we experienced. I believe this, uh, with the higher interest rate, probably this experiment is over in the sense that I do not really see policymakers, central banks prepare to eventually go back to this type of measure. I mean, that's what I actually mean when you have higher interest rate. Should, for instance, a recession ultimately hit the U.S. economy, there is a lot of room for central banks and policymakers to rely on the standard policy tool that they use in the past, which is interest rates, to eventually alleviate the impact of a recession. So from that point of view, at least from a policy point of view, I think this is a positive from the fact that interest rates are higher than they used to be in the past. Great, thanks. Philip, I'd like to come now to you. Max laid out all the reasons why the likelihood seems to be increasing that we're facing a higher for longer interest rate environment. So two questions. First, how does this differ from the previous several decades? And second, though Max discussed what this means for central banks in terms of monetary policymaking, I'd be curious to know what you think the implications are for reserves management and from the investment perspective of sovereign institutions. Right. So when we look back at the at the previous decades, we had we had quite an exceptional period that many people called the, the Great Moderation. And it was around 40 years ago that this Great Moderation actually started replacing the, the boom-bust economics of the 1960s and 70s, where you often had these sharp changes in business cycles and big swings in inflation rates. So central banks really had to be aggressive, but they still often ended up behind the curve in these ups and downs. And when they finally acted, the economy was already pulling in the other direction and their rate changes were in fact pro-cyclical and made everything worse. And with that, all of that volatility and uncertainty, you had a much higher term premium priced into bonds. And that was of course bad for risk assets. And it was a very difficult investment environment. But in the, in the 1980s, then a long period of, of declining inflation rates started. Uh, and there were several supporting mega trends. Uh, you had uh, hyper-globalization, deregulation, lower taxes. Um, you had a general shift in power from labor to capital. Um, you had favorable demographics, especially in emerging markets. You had the productivity gains from things like the internet and cell phones. And then, of course, you had the end of the Cold War that opened up new markets and allowed countries to, to harvest the peace dividend, uh, to invest the money in more productive ways than defense. Uh, and it also allowed companies to, to invest less in resiliency and redundancy because in a more stable and predictable world, you can, you can make so, your supply chain super efficient uh, because you can expect them to work all the time. Now, all of this then led not only to, to lower inflation, but also to, to less volatile and longer and more predictable business cycles, and therefore also less aggressive central banks. Uh, and that pushed in the term premium for bonds down and down and until it ultimately completely disappeared and, and even turned negative for some time. Uh, now, unfortunately, there are now signs that, that many of the trends that I just mentioned are now either stalling or reversing outright. Uh, and on top, we now had COVID and bringing the global economy to a complete halt and, and collapsing supply chains and then dropping trillions of dollars on the economy to kickstart everything again. That has now led to the, the outbreak of some, some serious inflation and the most aggressive central banks, uh, aggressive Fed in decades. And then we had the, the geopolitical troubles um, on top. 
And all of this is now probably really set the, the proverbial pendulum in motion. And with less of these structural uh, disinflationary trends, um, it, it might now really be that we have ended for good uh, what many people called uh, the great moderation. And now there are different challenges that are coming from this transition to what might be a higher higher rates regime. When you have such a long period of, of low or in the, in the late 2010s, even ultra low interest rates, investors more and more think that this is a new normal, that they start to tailor not only their portfolio, but really their investment processes and how they, how they think about investing in general to this quite specific environment. And you see that when you look at what happened in the years before COVID with eligible asset classes, allocation bans, risk appetite, and, and also diversification strategies that, that strongly relied on, on a negative stock bond correlation. And that affected also conservative investors like, like central banks, which were more and more chasing yield during that time and moved out on the risk curve. And of course, you saw also increased diversification to equities and in particular passive equities because we were in this the tight lifts or boats environments. And uh, when it comes to portfolio diversification, everything was, was based on a on a negative stock bond correlation and the very specific role that bonds could play as a, as a deflation hedge and such a, as a, such a setup. So the first consequence that, that we are now seeing is that even if we do not know how the next regime will really look like, uh, just alone the high risk that we will probably not go back to this very specific investment environment to which many institutions have tailored their, their asset allocation and diversification process, that alone could trigger a longer transition process where institutions really have to go over their books and, and reconsider their investment philosophy. And that can take some time. And the end point is also a moving target because, of course, maybe all of this was just a huge head fake and, and we end up with even lower rates and will continue with, with global Japanification. Then the, the next consequence is that investors have to prepare for higher volatility for the foreseeable future, at least while we transition into a new, a new regime, and no matter if we end up now really in a, in a higher for longer regime or not. And maybe 2023 gave us a, a glimpse of that, um, which was very volatile and it was also quite frustrating for investors and, and economic forecasters. I mean, we started the year in a, in a soft landing world in January, and then we took only a, a hot labor market print in February, and we were suddenly in a no landing world with rate expectations going to 6%. And then only a few weeks later in March, we, we suddenly had a banking crisis, and markets expected a credit crunch recession with rate cuts for the summer being priced in. But also that faded then very quickly once investors were positioned for that, and we went back into the, the higher for longer world. And then the market got scared of all the debt issuance and uh, the long end started to sell off. And then ultimately in, in November, we had another dramatic turnaround and we are now ending the year with a lot of uh, cuts will be coming soon, uh, soft landing optimism. But I mean, this kind of volatility, especially in the, in the 10 year, for example, the, 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 the risk-free rate, um, it, it is not normal and it is probably amplified by low by low liquidity and, and also question marks who should buy all this debt issuance going forward. But it will probably be with us for some time, um, especially should there be some, some new uncertainty at what level inflation will really bottom out in the in the longer term. And then finally, there's the question how to properly structure and diversify portfolios now, uh, especially how to protect them in, in case of tail events and how to protect them from from long-term long -term sticky inflation. Now, some say that positive stock bond correlation as we have it right now is not that bad during, during normal times. As long as in times of market stress, 
we still get a, a sharp flight to safety with the surge in bond prices that, that partly offsets the losses in risk assets. So a return to negative correlations in, in times of stress. Now, it was possible to rely on that during, during uh, financial accidents that happened with some frequency in the past uh, from LTCM to the great financial crisis because they were really purely deflationary in nature. But now we have to risk that the next shocks, whatever they are, they might not be financial in nature, but for example, geopolitical. Huh? They could easily come with another inflationary element attached. And because the market is now more sensitive to inflation surprises, uh, one thing that of course could happen is that during the next recession, bond markets could suddenly become afraid of the flood of monetary and fiscal stimulus that might come to save the economy, especially in an election year. And in that case, we would ultimately not return to negative stock bond correlations that could protect portfolios even during a recession. Now, we're not saying that this is the most likely outcome, but because the probabilities for such outcomes, which nobody probably might have imagined a few years ago, they are increasing and we are seeing more and more questions how to rethink diversification and, and tail risk protection because of that. And this is also where the ideas are coming from when it comes to commodities or energy stocks or, or technical strategies. And, and But of course, we're also getting questions where the, the opportunities are in, in such, a, uh, such a setup, um, which are quite plentiful, especially the fixed income space, which has now become really, really interesting again. But I think I, I let it now... Uh, head over to, to Max yeah, for the, for the th details th about th the, thanks, the asset Philippe. classes. Thanks, Philip. Actually, so Philip made a very important point that, uh, you know, Philip and I have been working with central banks and sovereign wealth funds for many years now. We never had a year with so many requests for advice. Uh, advice, uh, which is not really about a specific individual asset class or a specific investment idea, but it is much more advice on... Uh, what is basically the best strategic asset allocation going forward to navigate this environment, which as Philip pointed out, is very different from the one we were accustomed to, which is characterized by for sure higher yields, higher expected return in fixed income, but as well a higher volatility and a less stable stock bond correlation. I mean, if you look at, if we talk about, first of all, about the reserve manager, which, as you know, they are largely fixed income investor. I mean, the last two years, uh, they were very difficult for fixed income. Actually, until a few weeks ago, the return on a typical global ag type of fixed income portfolio, like a government bond of advanced economy portfolio, would have been, the, would have been negative territory for the third year in a row, which is actually, from an historical point of view, pretty, pretty unprecedented. As what happened actually in November changed that now, according to our estimate, uh, by end of November, a, a typical global government bond portfolio of a central bank is now, long duration is now in positive territory. So it might well be, unless things change dramatically over the next few weeks before the Christmas break, that uh, we will not have the third year of negative return on fixed income. Now, the good news of this uh, new environment is that expected return in fixed income are, uh, are going to be higher, much higher than they were before COVID uh, since, uh, since the great financial crisis. So this makes uh, this asset class uh, more attractive. And this, of course, also means, uh, particularly for reserve manager, but also I would say for so-called stabilization fund, which are sovereign wealth funds, which are largely invested in uh, fixed income asset classes, they will basically be able for the first time in many, many years 
to fulfill all the three main goals that they have in their investment mandate, which are uh, capital protection, liquidity, and return. This type of environment, of course, does not mean that no change are required for this type of investor. In the conversation that we are having with the reserve manager, with central banks, there is a lot of talk about the right way to invest in fixed income. And within, and within this asset class, we are seeing two main issues that are currently being discussed. The first one is the concept that of what we call flexibility in the management of fixed income portfolio. We are still in a very volatile environment. We see different dynamics across the different markets and different asset classes within fixed income. So there is a need for being more flexible, more tactical in order to take advantage of movements and also to extract a more return out of it, what we call in the jargon, the, the alpha generation. The second type of conversation we're having with a lot of reserve managers is about duration management. As you know, we came from the current difficult fixed income environment of the last two years with many central banks going in short duration bonds, which or cash or money market funds, which actually makes perfect sense because you wanted to protect yourself from rising interest rates. Now that we are getting closer and closer to peaking rates and the rates are expected either to remain higher for longer but, but, or eventually fall should the economic condition deteriorate further. The, 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 the question is what to do about duration. And I see emerging a new type of approach, which I think is also being mentioned by Philip in terms of tail risk management. One of these risks, for instance, is a recession in the US. The best way to hedge a recession in the US is to have long-term, long-duration bonds, particularly US 10-year treasury. According to our estimate, should a recession hit the US, these bonds in the next two years might generate double-digit return. So what we are seeing is that we are seeing what we what I could call also the barbell, a term that we use for something different in the past, within fixed income. So to keep the bulk of your portfolio in money market funds and short-duration bonds, which allow you already to fulfill your capital protection mandate because you are taking advantage of the higher policy rates, but at the same time to allocate a part of your fixed income portfolio to long-duration bonds to edge the recession risk. On the other hand, the reserve manager also have to deal with inflation risk, which is a little bit more difficult for them to edge, largely because, as you know, reserve managers do not typically invest in alternative asset classes or in real assets, like, for instance, real estate or infrastructure or even a commodity. The only thing that they have substantial in their portfolio is gold, which it is in part an inflation edge. And in fact, the gold has remained pretty strong in terms of demand among reserve manager. I believe that in the diversification journey that central banks started since 2009, we might well see an additional broadening of their investable universe, particularly things about asset class like real estate, which could be a good hedge against inflation over the long term and is actually a could could be a good fit for the central for reserve manager. On the other end, we have a second category of investment of investor in our universe, which is the sovereign wealth funds. I believe that this type of environment is more challenging for them, simply because according to our estimate, in the baseline scenario, we expect a return for so-called return maximizers, so the typical saving portfolio, to be on average 25% to 30% lower than what has been the case during the period since the great financial crisis, so the period 2009-2021. So for this investor, it's very interesting that they are starting really to think hard how to close this gap 
with the previous performance that they experienced. And this is challenging because we, first of all, the, the equity premium came down because of high yields. And also, as you know, there is currently an ongoing repricing of alternative asset classes as these asset classes adapt to the higher, for, uh, to the higher interest rate that we, that we are in. What I find interesting is the debate among sovereign wealth funds about the role of fixed income once again. Of course, in the past, the fixed income have really played only the role of a pure buffer. Basically, you had a little bit of fixed income in order to uh, alleviate the impact of falling price in risky asset when uh, volatility to the markets. Now, with the expected return in fixed income much higher than before, for many of these sovereign wealth funds, there is an ongoing debate whether they should have more fixed income in their asset allocation in order to fulfill their mandate, which is return maximization. So definitely, um, if I can conclude on this question, for both reserve manager and sovereign wealth funds, there is definitely a, a revitization of the role of fixed income in their portfolio for very different purposes, of course, for reserve manager and sovereign wealth funds. But I believe this is something which will not go away. Final point, which I would like to stress, is the question of liquidity, uh, something that we have been uh, looking, uh, Philip and I and, uh, and our team and UBS in general, we recently published a paper on that. We did a podcast with OMFIF on that. Liquidity comes at a premium in the current environment simply because interest rates are much higher. And I believe this liquidity is going to be looked at more closely in the future, and I don't think this will go away. And that's something uh, also that I want to mention is another emerging trend in the new economic and financial environment we are in. Right. Yeah. Thanks for laying out that comprehensive overview of how funds are adjusting their asset allocation strategies. Uh, I just want to take a second to say that OMFIF has also just recently published our Global Public Pension Report. And we do feature written contributions from funds like GIC and Australia's Future Fund on how they're reconsidering their investment approach as Max and Philip have described. And so be sure to check that out if you're interested to read about how uh, specific funds are looking to adjust their asset allocation strategies. To end on a slightly different point, Max, I am curious to know your thoughts on AI. We've seen recent progress in AI, which points to a broadening of its impact across labor markets. So what impacts do you expect uh, the increased productivity from AI to have on the rate environment? And how will this impact overall growth? Yeah, this is a very interesting topic. And of course, it is uh, very much debated, uh, not only among investors, but I would say at large among journalists, observers. And the reason is very simple. I mean, uh, one uh, of the puzzle of the big question, if you want, of the last few decades has been the low, the, the low productivity growth. That has been a little bit the missing element in order to make uh, growth at a global level more sustainable and more robust. We should not forget that I know this term is not used anymore, but until a while ago, we were talking about secular stagnation. And of course, the low productivity growth was one of the main factors behind uh, secular stagnation. Actually, it's interesting in our scenario analysis that we do in order to discuss with investors about uh, performance of portfolio across different regimes, we have a uh, one scenario which we call high growth, high productivity, which is a little bit the sort of a dream scenario, right? Where yes, inflation remain high, but in some way an interest rate remain high, but this is uh, much easier to handle because of the productivity growing uh, faster than in the overall scenario, including the baseline. 
Now, it's interesting because this debate is not only a sort of a media or journalist uh, topic of conversation, but it's becoming a big topic of conversation among, among uh, economists as well. And I was recently in a UBS uh, event in Milan where I had the, the honor of discussing this issue with uh, Michael Spence, the Nobel Prize in Economics, who recently actually published an article on this topic in Foreign Affairs. An article which, uh, for those listeners who are really interested about this topic and about the implication of AI going forward, I really recommend to read. This article doesn't only talk about AI as as, as a pure technological innovation, but as a, and I'm just re really using the words of Michael Spence, as an economic revolution. According to some estimate, in fact, the economic potential of generative artificial intelligence could add more or less about $4 trillion annually to the global economy. So this would be on top of the 11 trillion of non-generative AI and now and over forms of automation uh, that we are uh, observing. These are very big numbers. I just want to put things into perspective. Just uh, the entire German economy is worth about $4 trillion. So we are talking about adding every year as additional GDP of an economy of the size of Germany. This, this impact would largely come from increasing productivity. And now here there are more details coming out about how AI would impact the different parts of the labor market. And what I found very intriguing is that actually AI is perceived to be productivity enhancing, particularly for low-skilled jobs, rather for the high-skilled jobs. So this would mean that there is a large part of the global economy, sorry, of the labor market, which is typically marked by low productivity, which could receive a big lift from AI. And this is something which definitely can really make future growth much more robust. Now, the question, of course, is, uh, is, is the timing of this revolution. This could, uh, it's very difficult to, to really determine wh whether this will happen over the next one, two, or five, or 10 years. Now, what I find uh, very interesting for the conversation that I had with uh, Michael Spence is that he see the risk of, of too much regulation. So there is a risk that the whole debate uh, from a policy perspective will lead to very uh, heavy regulation, which ultimately could in some way reduce the innovative, uh, the innovation impact of AI. You can already see that happening in a, in a certain way in the debate, because there is very often, and this is something which goes back in history, every time there has been a new technology available, there has always been a very strong opposition because of the fear of uh, the potential negative impact, for instance, on employment levels, on uh, loss of jobs. And this is something which I think we need to monitor very closely because uh, if we let AI produce uh, its innovation, of course, within the boundaries, which makes sense to fix from a policy perspective, I believe that over the next five years, which is more or less the time horizon that we look in our economic scenarios, I believe we, we might have a, a very positive impact from AI going forward. Uh, that's really interesting. Thanks both. I think we'll wrap up here. It sounds like we should anticipate higher inflation and higher rates, but if we take AI into account, there's a potentially higher productivity gains as well. So the growth story might not be so gloomy. And this is definitely an area to keep an eye on in the future. Yeah, maybe let me use this opportunity also to thank uh, Omfif always for uh, the hospitality and, uh, of course, for all the very interesting uh, reports and articles that you have, uh, that you publish, and that we also appreciate the fact that we are able to contribute to the debate about uh, reserve management and sovereign wealth management in general. 
So I wish you all the team and the listener a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, I guess. Thanks very much. It's our pleasure to have you both. And thank you as well to our listeners. Be sure to download the OnSwift podcast wherever podcasts are available and check out all the content that we mentioned here on our website. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast. 